Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. In this episode, we're pleased to have Elise Boddy, founder and director of the Inclusion Project at Rutgers Law School. Ms. Boddy is an award-winning legal scholar and a full-time law professor at Rutgers Law School in Newark, where she teaches constitutional law, civil rights, and state and local government law. Before joining Rutgers, she was the Director of Litigation at the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. She is also advising counsel for plaintiffs in a pending lawsuit challenging de facto segregation in the New Jersey public schools. Ms. Boddy will discuss the central issues in that pending litigation and the benefits of an inclusive school environment for all students. I'm David Chiera. I'm the Executive Director of Education Law Center, and I'm happy to have on this episode of the podcast on the right to education, Elise Boddy, who is a professor at the Rutgers School of Law in Newark and an expert on school segregation and the law of uh, school segregation, both federal and state law and a good friend of mine and a good friend of education equity advocates all across our state. So it's a pleasure to have you, Elise. Well, I am super delighted to be here and it's just such a pleasure to be in conversation with you anytime, but uh, especially on this podcast. So thank you for the invitation. So uh, just quickly, Elise, can you just briefly talk to us about your work uh, generally in this area uh, at the law school and beyond? Well, I'll start by saying that much of this work is is very personal. I'm heavily involved in facilitating a case against the state of New Jersey, challenging school segregation in the state. I'm not litigating the case. I, I help advise on the case from time to time. And I do this work. I'm not, this is not part of my professional responsibilities at the law school. This is sort of my side job, if you will. I'm not being paid for it. So I don't want to mislead anyone, but it's an important issue for me, one, because I I benefited personally from school integration growing up in in public education. It's also personal for me because I clerked for Robert Carter, who was a federal district judge and was one of the lead lawyers in Brown versus Board of Education. And I still call him Judge Carter. Uh, Judge Carter, actually, he was not a judge at the time, uh, but he litigated many of the major New Jersey cases uh, when he was general counsel for the NAACP later in his career. So I have, um, I have a, a deep personal connection to this issue. And I think it's critically important, critically important, I can't emphasize that enough, to advancing educational equity and fairness in our public education system, but also I think it's 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 really critical for our democracy. So you also, Elise, worked at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Is that is that correct? Yes, I was uh, I was a a baby lawyer at the Legal Defense Fund, and then I later uh, led the litigation program, directed the litigation program, and I worked on federal school desegregation cases in the South. Again, it's a pleasure to have you to talk about this. Uh, as you described, very important and urgent topic. Um, So let me start uh, with the landscape in New Jersey. New Jersey, uh, there's a lot of reports that keep coming out about how segregated New Jersey's public school system is along racial lines and uh, socioeconomic lines and poverty lines. Can you talk a little bit about the problem today I mean, there's a long-standing problem, of course, but kind of where are we today in New Jersey in terms of the isolation of students in schools and school districts by uh, by race? Sure. So 
Yeah, many may be surprised to know that, or surprised to learn that the state of New Jersey is among the most segregated states in the in the country. For Black and Latino students, New Jersey is the sixth and seventh most segregated state in the country, respectively, um, in terms of its public schools. The reasons for that have to do with the history of school segregation in the North, unlike in the South, where many states were subject to federal remedies for school segregation because it was segregation by law. In the North, school segregation was considered to be what's called de facto, meaning it wasn't the product of specific discriminatory intent, but it was segregation that resulted for other reasons, like housing discrimination and uh, redlining and school boundaries. Um, and so uh, because many of the, the systems in the North were not subject to federal court orders banning segregation, um, it's persisted and, and deepened. So most of our most segregated states in the country are actually outside the South. And, and talk, talk a little bit about why, the, why are there, I mean, this has been, this is a longstanding problem in the, in the Northern, Northeastern states, you know, Connecticut, um, New York and other states, and obviously New Jersey. What, 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 what's the persistence about? How, how come this hasn't in over these decades changed, changed very much? Well, David, that's a really that's a really important question. Um, I think it it has to do with a number of different reasons. One, I've I've alluded to some of them already. School segregation came about through um, housing segregation because of requirements that students, for the most part, have to go to school where they live. And so, when you're dealing with the legacy of housing segregation and redlining when you're dealing with the legacy of, of the racial wealth gap that was created uh, due to housing discrimination plus school boundaries, that's the perfect storm for, for segregation. Because essentially what we have is students who are trapped by race where they are, and there's been no litigation in the state system up until very recently to remedy that. There was a federal constitutional challenge back in the early 1970s, challenging school segregation in New Jersey, but uh, that, that effort failed. The other reason why I think we have school segregation, frankly, is that it's been normalized. People are just sort of used to the fact that we, well, we just so happen to live in these, these separate places and they're used to isolation. And so people, it's invisible. The problem is largely invisible to people or they treat it like it's invisible. Maybe that's more accurate. In New Jersey, the legislature, and maybe you can comment on this, but the legislature, the state legislature, obviously and the governor, the elected branches of government determine the boundaries, school district boundaries, which you've identified as a key factor in why schools are so segregated in our state. And those are, have been historically set by the legislature and to this day along municipal lines. They could do it other ways. They could, they could do county districts. They could do regional districts. They could do multiple community districts. There's a lot of different policy choices that could be made. Can you talk about the role of the, since we're really focusing in on the educational system here, the role of the legislature's decision in, in circumscribing school districts where students have to go to school by municipal boundaries and that how that plays into um, the persistence of, seg of a segregated school system that we have? Well, as I alluded to earlier, because of laws that require, for the most part, students to attend school where they live, coupled with housing segregation, which is the legacy of, of redlining, you have neighborhoods that are basically defined by race. We have students who, black students who are segregated, uh, Latinx students who are segregated and white students who, who are segregated. And so when you have the legislature drawing municipal boundaries that track segregation, you're, you know, you're going to have um, segregated schools. 
And, and let me also add here that I can't overestimate the harm that this does, I think, both to, both to our educational system and to our democracy. Um, Elizabeth Anderson, who's at the University of Michigan, wrote this terrific book called The Imperatism and Integration, um, which talks about the fact that when we're separate from one another, we develop this sense of distrust because we don't communicate or interact with, with each other. And so when you have black students who attend predominantly black schools, white students who attend predominantly white schools, Latinx students who attend maybe a mixture of Latinx and black schools, um, we don't have the opportunity to, to speak with, with, with one another and to learn from one another. And so there's this tremendous sense of distrust and that undermines our ability to work together um, and to develop a sense of mutual respect and regard. Um, so the, the it starts with the boundaries. We have to deal with the boundaries. And, and just to emphasize, you're making the point, correct me if, if, if I'm wrong, that the harms that occur that you've been describing um, of, of this separation of children along racial lines and the inability to get to know, communicate, interact, get to know one another, share space, share experiences with one another is something that's not just harmful to say black students who are in a largely black school or black district or Latin students who are in those or mixed, but also white students as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and this is something I think that's underappreciated, quite frankly. Um, and and it's a longstanding argument that people have have overlooked. Um, and the idea that white students are harmed from segregation has has deep roots. Charles Sumner, who became a U.S. senator from Massachusetts, um, and a black lawyer named Robert Morris, argued a case out of Boston back in the late 1800s, and what they argued was that segregation in the Boston public school system um, not only harmed black students, but it harmed white students. And what they and what they said, what, what Charles Sumner said in his in his argument to the court, he said that white children who are taught in segregated schools are nursed in the sentiments of caste. I'm going to repeat that. They are nursed in the sentiments of caste. And this was actually something that the social scientists who filed a brief in Brown versus Board of Education, most people don't know this because the, the Supreme Court never picked up on it, but the social scientists in Brown argued that the harms of segregation to white children come about because white children, and this is, I'm quoting directly from this brief, they said white children gain personal status in an unrealistic and non-adaptive way. Uh, when comparing themselves to members of the minority group, they are not required to evaluate themselves in terms of actual ability and achievement. So white students come to think of themselves as superior because they're not, they're not competing with all of the children. They don't see all of the children or interact with all of the children. Um, and so they're, they're, at the time that Brown versus Board of Education was discussed and filed, there was a recognition that segregation harmed white students, but it's been buried and no one really talks about it. Yeah, I, I want to, um, on that note, sort of pick up, shift a little bit to, uh, to a court case in, before the New Jersey Supreme Court uh, in the late 60s called Booker, kind of a landmark decision by the Supreme Court. And didn't the court in that opinion, now we're talking, I, I, I don't remember the exact date of the decision, but didn't the court actually pick up on that very point that you're talking about I mean, they were talking it more in terms, they were using the word, the more modern word, I guess, that Mr. Sumner wouldn't have used, which back in 1800, which is diversity. But the New Jersey Supreme Court in Booker talked a lot about the impact of the segregated schools, of attending non-diverse schools, racially diverse schools, on children, both white and black. Didn't they do that? Well, and, and um, let me just add that, uh, that Robert Carter, this was one of the cases where he was counsel of record. So um, I don't know if there's a, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence, but um, they, yeah, so Booker, which was decided in 1965, so I don't know if this is the language that, that you're referring to, but they say 
quoting directly from the document, in a society such as ours, it is not enough that the three R's, meaning reading, writing, and arithmetic, are being taught properly. For there are other vital considerations. The children must learn to respect and live with one another in multiracial and multicultural communities, and the earlier they do, the better. Um, it is during their formative school years that firm foundations may be laid for good citizenship and broad participation in, in the mainstream of affairs. So the court is explicitly recognizing not only the educational advantages of what they refer to as heterogeneous student populations, that, that is diversity, but, they're, but they explicitly recognize the democratic benefits, the reason why it matters to our democracy that children learn with one another and learn from one another. And if we have just sort of looking to what's happening in our country now and the deep divisions in our country, um, I don't think it's a coincidence that um, we also ha have very highly segregated schools across our country. But New Jersey was way ahead of its time. And New Jersey has, I think, the best, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put myself out there and say it, I think it has the best state constitutional law in the country on this issue. But, and I want to get back to that constitutional law in a minute, but I would say that the achievement of, the, of a system that delivers more than the three R's, as the court in New Jersey Supreme Court in Booker said, is, is still way long way off some 50 plus years later after Booker was decided. But, but I, I, so we're going to get to that and the, and the court rulings and what, you know, what they did and also um, kind of why they haven't had the kind of effect that we want in dealing with this problem and and also where the courts are today on this. You know, you, you've alluded to that. But before we do that, can you tell our listeners at least, you know, people would say, well, I thought Brown versus Board of Education dealt with all of this. And talk to us a little bit about why Brown didn't affect the de facto segregation that you've described in New Jersey and, and also maybe you can talk a little bit about what the uh, law, the constitutional law on, on segregated schools under the US constitution stands now in light of Supreme Court decisions over recent decades. Well, most people think that Brown applies in the North and to understand why it doesn't, we have to talk about another Supreme Court decision, a hugely important in a bad way, a hugely consequential, I should say, decision, uh, Milliken versus Bradley, which ranks on my top 10, maybe top 20, depending on my mood, list of terrible cases out of the United States Supreme Court. And that was a, a decision from the, um, the 1970s. It came out of Detroit, where you had white flight. This is in the 50s and 60s, white flight from Detroit a school board in Detroit that was trying to accommodate white segregation, essentially. And so they were gerrymandering school district boundaries. A case was brought by the NAACP challenging those boundaries. And the judge in the case has, has a really interesting background, but um, maybe we won't get into that, uh, who was, well, I'll just say very suspicious of the theory of the case initially, and then came to be a true believer. Such a true believer, in fact, that when it came time to remedy what he determined was unconstitutional segregation under the United States Constitution, um, he drew a remedy that included the outlying overwhelmingly white suburbs. And what that would have meant was that students would have been bussed around a large metropolitan area. The judge's decision was challenged um, in the United States Supreme Court. And what the United States Supreme Court said is, you can't have a remedy that includes the suburbs, the outlying white suburbs, unless you can prove that either the state of Michigan or those suburbs intentionally discriminated against the black students in Detroit. And that just, you know, that was, that was not possible to do because of the narrow way that the court was defining um, intentional discrimination. So because of Milliken versus Bradley, the U.S. Constitution only applies to intentional state-mandated, government-mandated segregation, what we, do, what we call in the law de jure segregation. What New Jersey has is de facto segregation. We don't have 
you know, people like um, George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door, or actually that might've been somebody else, but we don't have, you know, Southern segregationists explicitly saying, you're not coming to our school because we're black. Instead, what we have is a state legislature drawing municipal boundaries that quote unquote, only happen to uh, coincide with um, racial segregation. So is the effect, the effect of both Brown and Milliken to essentially, on two levels, to essentially foreclose claims under the U.S. Constitution against New Jersey segregated system. One, on the one hand, you have to prove intent, not just in fact segregation. Yes. So you have to have actual evidence that uh, lawmakers are discriminating against African-American or Latino students. That's number one. And number two is that even if you have that situation, the remedy is limited to the confines of the district boundaries in which the intentional segregation is found. Is that a fair way of characterizing it? Yes, that's precisely the case. So federal constitutional law is limited to very specific forms of intentional discrimination. One might think, by the way, on that point, one might think that the fact that we have school district boundaries that coincide so precisely with racial segregation, that that could constitute a form of intent. Um, it doesn't under federal constitutional law, you know, it remains to be seen whether that could be recognized under state constitutional law. So with the access to the U.S. Constitution to address this problem essentially foreclosed by United States Supreme Court interpretations of, its const of the federal constitution, we're left with the state constitution. And let's get back to that. You've talked about New Jersey Supreme Court interpreting the New Jersey constitution to address this issue. And I want, we want, to, I want to get into those rulings a little bit, but what's the New Jersey constitution say about, does it say anything about racial segregation in the public schools? There is a very specific clause in the New Jersey state constitution that bars school segregation. Um, in fact, I believe, I'm pretty confident it's the only explicit anti-school segregation clause in, um, in among all of the state constitutions. Uh, and it was facilitated, it was brought into being by the lone black representative to the state, con the 1947 state constitutional convention, um, if memory serves. So we do have an explicit provision and there's other state constitutional provisions which bar uh, you know, intentional discrimination, the separation of, of students by race. So um, the case, let's go back to Booker. So um, the court in Booker weighed in on the issue of de, de facto segregation in the public schools. Tell us a little bit about that ruling and what it was dealing with, what it addressed, and also a little bit about the constitutional basis, because as I understand it, it wasn't just this clause that prohibits racial segregation in the public schools, but also the thorough and efficient education clause, which is our, edu our broad education guarantee of access to public education in the state. Yes, yeah, so my, my understanding is that school segregation does violate the thorough and efficient clause there, and, and by the way, it's, you know, it's not just Booker, but there are, uh, you know, a, a roster of state Supreme Court constitutional decisions that hold that de facto segregation um, is a violation of the state constitution and under these multiple provisions. I don't know if that's, you know, how helpful that is. If you want to, yeah, give so, it, you to go back and look at it. But. No, that, that, that's, that's fine. So, so the, the difference in the interpretation of the New Jersey Constitution by the New Jersey Supreme Court, um, looking at both the thorough and efficient education clause and the separate clause that explicitly prohibits racial segregation in the public schools, and I think it's the military as well, but it's public schools and military, the court has interpreted, is, is, is it your understanding that the court has interpreted those constitutional provisions uh, in a way that goes beyond what the U.S. Supreme Court has said, which is that you don't have to show intent that the mere fact of segregation, however caused, whether de facto or intentional or whatever, 
violates those constitutional provisions. Is, is that kind of a correct uh, yeah. analysis of those rulings that you're talking about? Yes, um, and that's what makes the New Jersey state constitution stand out and why it's so critically important for advancing educational equity in the state. New Jersey uh, has carved out a different path for itself than the United States Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court in New Jersey has said multiple times that de facto segregation, that is segregation that exists from as a result of history and private decisions and, and the like is recognized as unconstitutional under the, under the state constitution. The state does not require a showing of intent in the way that it does in the federal system. And is part of that rationale by the court, and this goes back to your quote from the Booker decision about the opportunity to experience a diverse student body, harming students and not being um, consistent with the kind of educational, modern educational experience that, that children need. Is the court's um, recognition that the opportunity to attend a racially diverse school is a fundamental component of the educational package that students need today in New Jersey. Is that part of why a de facto segregated system is neither thorough nor efficient under the education clause, under the education guarantee of the New Jersey constitution? I think I'm gonna answer your question in two parts. So one is just to understand the historical context. Again, the Booker decision came down, was handed down by the New Jersey Supreme Court in 1965. At that time, federal constitutional law requiring a showing of discriminatory intent had not emerged yet. That was before the, the Milliken decision that I mentioned before. So that, that was the federal context. That being said, I think it's, it's very accurate to say that the New Jersey Supreme Court was really ahead of its time. It recognized, coming on the heels of Brown, certainly, but um, it recognized in a very fulsome way, very comprehensive way, why diversity, that was not the language it used back then, but why diversity nonetheless is so important for the educational experiences of our children. And so that is a, a central component of the Booker decision. It's the, the, the decision, the court's recognition that uh, diversity was, was key to education and key to our democracy. Let me ask you, Elise, uh, the court uh, in Booker basically holds that de facto segregation is a violation of the New Jersey Constitution, both the exp explicit prohibition on racial segregation in the public schools and the requirement for uh, the, the state to provide a thorough and efficient system of public schools for all open to all children. And, and you talked about cases sort of following that, decisions of the court affirming that. In those decisions, did, did the court uh, talk about the responsibility of the state to address this? Or was there, did the court place the burden on dealing with this with local school districts or did the court weigh in on the state's, since this, since this is a state system and a state constitution, a state obligation, what did the court have to say about the state's response, responsibility, affirmative responsibility to try to address de facto segregation in the public schools? There's language in Booker, which essentially says that even if the federal constitution does not compel the state to eliminate or reduce de facto segregation, it says it does not uh, preclude such action by state school authorities in furtherance of state law. So I don't, I think I, I'm going to trip up over a legalistic answer to, to your question. I don't think it would be the fullest possible answer. I just have to go back and look to be absolutely clear. I mean, my sense from the North Halden case in the opinion that Chief Justice Poritz authored, I believe suggests an affirmative obligation on the part of the state to remedy school segregation. And in particular, the commission, that, that case involved the dissolution of a sending and receiving relationship amongst 
two school districts, a high school where students from one district went to a high school in another district and one district wanted to get out of that. And the effect of that would have been to upend the racial balance in the in the schools. And the court found that that was improper under the Constitution. Didn't, it, didn't the court really place that affirmative burden on the commissioner to figure out what to do about this and to make sure that um, in this in that circumstance, racial balance was maintained and wasn't diminished by by what the district wanted to do. Yeah, my my recollection from that case is that there was an affirmative obligation that was that was placed on the state to ensure that uh, there was not a that the withdrawal of one of the school districts from the sending receiving language did not. Uh, increased segregation in that particular context. So I think overall, it's fair to say that the New Jersey state constitution places an affirmative obligation on the state to ensure that school districts uh, do not become segregated or are not segregated. So back to district boundaries has, has the court ever considered and approved or ruled upon or pined upon, going back to Milliken, the, a situation where district boundaries were either eliminated or consolidated uh, in order to um, address de facto segregation and create a more diverse school system? How about in the Morristown case? And my understanding is that in Morristown, the court had before it uh, the question of the same kind of question about districts succeeding or breaking apart, which would cause more de facto segregation. And I and I wasn't it true in that case that the court was very clear that uh, the commissioner's affirmative obligation, constitutional obligation, can include eliminating district boundaries or crossing district boundaries in order to create that more diverse educational system. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, like the, the North Halden case in, um, in the Jenkins case, which was, was preceded North Halden, that, uh, yes, so the, the New Jersey state courts held that the commissioner has an obligation to consider the uh, racial impact of a school district withdrawing from a sending re and receiving relationship. That, that was within the, the commissioner's power to do that. And, you know, again, sort of going to, you know, looking at the broad sweep of New Jersey state constitutional law, there are, you know, a number of decisions that affirm the state constitutional importance of integration or diversity in its public school system. And uh, in that respect, I think New Jersey is, is unique in its decades-long commitment to addressing school segregation um, in, in uh, you know, the context that we've just described. But it's a very, it's a very robust commitment um, to diversity and integration. So, um, so, is it, so what you're telling us is that the New Jersey Supreme Court's interpretation of the New Jersey Constitution places an affirmative responsibility on the commissioner to address racial imbalance in our public school system, segregation, and has the power to even change district boundary lines or cross district boundary lines, something that the United States Supreme Court, frankly, was unwilling to do. Why hasn't that addressed the problem? Why, given that, why are we still sort of stuck in these municipal-based circumscribed school districts that are still so intensely segregated, given given the robust jurisprudence and court rulings that you've been talking about, can you, can you talk a little bit about what the problem is? <laughs> that's, that's a, um, that's a great question, David. Um, and I think the sort of the pat answer is that uh, you have to litigate first, really, to, to address this problem. People don't voluntarily decide necessarily hey we're going to we're going to integrate our schools there it requires some outside pressure i think for people to do that you know it's it's monumental for people to sort of you know take on that issue by themselves they need the assistance of the court so first there has to be 
a push from the outside. Somebody has to sue and there has to be a demand. And, and I also think it goes back to something I said before, which is just about the fact that people have kind of become accustomed to the fact of segregation. They just think, well, that's just the way things are. And so some of this has to do with our imagination, being able to imagine a world, uh, a state that's different from what we have now and uh, to challenge the legitimacy, not only constitutionally, but socially and democratically of a, of a system that so starkly segregates children. And so there has to be, I think people need to kind of wake up a little bit, not to be mean about it, but you got to wake up a little bit. And also, um, you know, to understand the profound moral costs uh, to segregation in our, in our state. So there isn't anything, Elise, that would in any way uh, limit the elected branches, the political branches of our state government, the legislature and the governor, from looking at the Supreme Court's rulings and saying, you know, we have a responsibility to do something about this. We don't want to wait for a court ruling or we, we don't care about that. This is, um, talk a bit about the politics. This is what I'm trying to get to is the politics of segregation in, and, and in particular in the state capital, is there, you know, what's the dynamic there? Are there any champions of desegregation? Are people talking about it? Or is it an, has it been an issue that's been on the table? Or is it, as you say, they've even gotten used to it and don't really want to do anything about it, even though they have the power to actually address some of the problems that you're talking about? You know, I think that there are, there are some legislators that are aware of the problem, but again, I think when you're when you're talking about and, and actually, sorry, to, to to directly answer your question, the state has a lot of power here. It could theoretically alter municipal boundaries if it chose to do so. I believe that's within the power of the state. But I think we have to also recognize that this is a problem that is that is very deeply entrenched. And when you have a problem that is very deeply entrenched, it requires for sure the state legislature, but we also, I believe, um, need the courts to do this work. I think it's critically important for the courts to be um, involved. I think people respond differently when a judge orders them to do something. If it's, if it's left to the political branches, I don't know that um, the political branches will will voluntarily take that on just to be perfectly frank about it. So I think it's a, the kind of system that requires all hands on deck, honestly. I think we need the legislature, we need the governor, we need communities to become involved in this issue. And it is important enough that all of the branches of government and people around the state should be engaged in addressing this problem. It reminds me of, uh, I remember when governor, when uh, John Corzine was governor and he gave a speech that really caught my attention. I guess this was around 2008 and he was talking about Camden and he was talking about how he was decrying a system in which kids in Camden were consigned to schools and to segregated schools within Camden and couldn't get on a bus and go a few miles to Cherry Hill and other communities and have the opportunity to attend a school that was more not only racially diverse but socioeconomically diverse. He gave that speech and then that was the last thing I heard of it. <laughs> so, you know, in my experience, and there, I've had a few of these experiences where some politician actually raises the issue and then quickly it quickly fades. And so your point is, is that there's sort of entrenched mindset that, that, that set in, if you will, collective mindset. I guess some of it has to do with, you know, um, you know racism and structural racism and things like that. And, you know, the whole issue of, of uh, people um, moving to certain communities in order to get better schools, and those are tied to property values and all of these things. You're sort of talking about a very intense, deep mindset in which there's there's the, 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 the point that the court has made and that you are making, which is the benefits of diversity, the benefits of a more diverse 
education aren't uh, readily grasped and appreciated, and therefore there's no political demand demand on the political side. Is that a fair way of of, of characterizing things today? Yes, I do. I think that's that is a fair, very fair characterization. And and let me just say, let me put two things more starkly. One is that the state is failing our children. And it's not just failing black children and Latino children, as we discussed earlier, it's also failing white children. We are not preparing all of our children to work with one another, to live with one another, to be with one another in a, in a diverse society. And we could, and my second point is, we could get to a better place. And the reason why I have such faith in this is because I, again, having uh, been involved in litigating school desegregation cases in the South, in teaching about school desegregation and working and researching about school desegregation, I've seen the trajectory of some of these districts in the South and the success that they had. I know people who went through you know, desegregation um, in the South. It wasn't always easy. That, that is for sure, it was, not always, it was not always easy, but there were tremendous successes. And, and even just looking at um, Jefferson County, Kentucky, which was a school district that was under a federal court order for decades, came out under federal supervision. In other words, it, was, it got to a point where it was no longer required by a federal court that they integrate their school system and when they were released from federal supervision, they fought to get it back. So you had white parents who had mobilized to actually protect what they had been required to do for decades. And I've heard that story again and again, that when, when people, including white people, experience integration and diversity in a meaningful way, it is, it is you know, it can be, it can be life-changing. And, and it goes back to what I had said earlier about kind of the fear and distrust that emerges in a segregated school system. The reason why integration works, and we have decades of research to show this, by the way, the reason why it works is because of something called the contact theory, which emerged in Brown versus Board of Education and that theory is basically that, look, it's really hard to demonize somebody when you sit next to them every day. And you, you, know, you speak with them and you learn about their family and you heard what they had for dinner the night before. I mean, you get to know people on a really um, granular level. And so you know, people become familiar with one another and then they, they learn, they learn their, the complexity of their experience. They learn to appreciate their humanity in a really you know, important way. And so this is what happens in an integrated environment. And it will, it will help to alleviate, if it's done correctly, it will help to alleviate that fear and that mistrust. And so we can get to a better place in New Jersey. Well, and I think we have our own example of that, the Morristown situation that you've described. The, the, the district was consoli ordered consolidated by a commissioner who then I think was run out of Trenton. <laughs> Yes, Margaret. It didn't last long. Um, and now we have the Morris Regional School District, and it's still, I'm, you know, I'm told, um, uh, racially balanced and, you know, and um, a very strong school system that serves both more the, the city of Morristown and surrounding suburban areas. So we have our own, I think, exam examples of that. Um, but I want to ask you about changing diversity. I mean, in New Jersey, isn't there the argument that I hear is that the schools are actually not as segregated, a bit more diverse these days. We have significant population of uh, Asian students, Indian students, uh, other ethnic groups, um, that it's a much more diverse system than it was, say, in 1965 when Booker was decided, when the segregation was more black white. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say to that? Yes, this was so in Booker was um, may have just aligned with the liberalization of immigration laws. So yes, we are we are a more diverse state, which is wonderful as a result of, of immigration. And so we have uh, more South Asian students, we have more Asian students, 
And we have some pockets of the state, to, to your point, David, that actually do have diverse schools, accidentally diverse, but diverse nonetheless. Some of them still wrestle with some internal issues, but, but diverse schools nonetheless. And so we have this sort of um, this strange coupling of diversity in some parts of the state, and then at the same time, this, this really stark segregation. And so we have to sort of celebrate what we do have, but then we have to, but we have to go further. We have to address the other half of that equation, which is the very serious racial isolation that we see in other parts of the state. And that gets to the kind of issue of what do you do about it today? Um, what can the, let's say the legislature, if it decided to do something about this, um, you know, you have um, larger areas which are more segregated, not just individual school districts, but, you know, parts of counties and different regions of the state. Talk about what are some of the practical things, policy changes that lawmakers in Trenton can make if they, if they had the political will to do so in order to advance, if you will, the objective of giving children and the opportunity to attend more racially diverse uh, schools in our state? Well, the, the legislature could redraw um, district boundaries for sure, if they had the um, political will to, to do so. So there's that. That's, a, that's incredibly important, by the way. So if we have the, the legislature redrawing district boundaries, that would that would address, at least initially, the, the problem that we're facing. I do think that there would need to be some consideration of, of what happens inside the schools. So, uh, you know, I, I, I talk about this problem as being sort of structural, but also a problem that uh, requires rethinking um, education within the schools. We have to be very intentional about this work Whenever you have change, people, you know, people a lot of the times don't don't necessarily like change. Um, but you need to build systems of educational equity within the schools, and I can't emphasize that enough. You know, you have to attend to teaching and staffing and curricula and that sort of thing. And by the way, again, going back to the school cases in the South and the era of Brown, much of my understanding about what needs to happen is drawn from another seminal decision that most people don't know about, which was a, case, a federal case that came out of uh, the state of Virginia, which held that, that schools had to be desegregated, this is the language of the federal constitution, root and branch. And so what that meant was that um, the federal courts monitored not only student enrollment, but they looked at curriculum, they looked at extracurricular activities, they looked at transportation. It was a soup to nuts rethinking of public education. And I know that sounds, or that will sound nerve wracking to some people, but it was critically important work. And it meant that those public schools became far more equitable and that was critically important for the work. So that brings us to the litigation that's going on now. You've alluded to that, that you're, in, you're not on the legal team, but you're actively involved in advising them and supporting the case. Tell us about that case. And is it building on all of the principles in the, that you've discussed that we've talked about in Booker and other decisions about both the, um, the prohibition, if you will, against de facto segregation, how it harms kids, why it's not delivering the kind of educational experience that's required under our state education requirement and so forth, and, and the state's affirmative obligation. Talk to us about that case. What, what's, what's unique about it? Where is it? What is it claiming? What's the, what are the claims there? And, and more importantly, what's, what's going to come out of that in your view? Well, the, it's a, as you know, the, the case is a state constitutional case brought by different organizational plaintiffs. The lead plaintiff is the Latino Action Network. It also includes the state chapter of the NAACP, the Urban League of Essex County, the United Methodist Church of Greater uh, New Jersey, the Latino uh, Coalition, um, and nine individual plaintiffs. It's a unique case in that it challenges segregation uh, across the state. It's not just limited to one um, school district. 
Uh, and the essence of the claim is that we have school districts and, and the complaint points to a number of them that are starkly segregated by race. School districts that have, you know, upwards of 90% Black and Latino children. The emphasis in the complaint is on Black and Latino children, but the complaint does mention the segregation of white students. And white students, as I mentioned before, are also really starkly segregated. So the complaint doesn't delve into the, um, in a deep way, the educational harms. It's focused really on the numbers and the numbers don't lie. It is a disturbingly segregated system in many parts of the state. The case right now is, is in the trial level, is in the court at the trial level and uh, could be moving to a really important stage this spring. It remains to be seen what will happen, of course. But I think, you know, my sort of message is that this is, this is going to be a really important, that this is a really important case. Everyone should know about it because it imagines a different, more democratic, more equitable way of organizing our public school system in New Jersey. And so we'll see what happens this spring. So two additional questions on this. One is, is um, I read the complaint and I'm familiar with it. And most of the data that's in the complaint about the de facto segregation, which as we've talked about, is a violation of our constitution. All of that data comes directly from the state itself, pretty much the state's own reports and the state's own data. How does this, how's the state defending? What's the, what's the defense to this? The state's defense is basically to put its head in the sand and to say, you know, hear no evil, see no evil. The state has been aggressively unwilling to deal with the facts in this case. They don't want anything to do with it. And I have to say, you know, I'll just say, I mean, I've said this publicly, I am really disappointed with this governor who you would, you know, you would think of a governor who likes to sort of describe himself as a progressive, has green-lighted a defense of this case that is hostile. It is, a, it is a hostile defense. And litigation, one of the reasons why I said that I think litigation is important is because sometimes litigation gives politicians cover to do what they know is all is right. And this governor has not approached that in this way. And it's and it's deeply disappointing. So you know we'll see. History will not be kind. Well I should say history will not be kind to the state's defense. Uh, I hope that at some point they will realize that this actually can get us to a better place and, and, and would take a different approach. Have the plaintiffs in the case um, spelled out or talked about if the court were to find that the system based on this data is in fact de facto segregated and therefore violates the state constitution and essentially declares the system, including the way municipal a school district boundaries are drawn unconstitutional. What relief are the plaintiffs seeking from the court? The plaintiffs are asking the court to declare the state laws that more or less require students to go to school where they live unconstitutional. What the other parts of the remedy might look like has to be decided you know, at the remedy stage. Uh, so right now, the idea is to have the court rule on the liability question, which basically means, is the state at fault? And then if the court finds in favor of the plaintiffs on that question, then to move to the, to the remedy stage. But right now, the real issue is whether the, the laws that require the students to go to school where they live, whether those laws are unconstitutional or whether that law is unconstitutional. Go back to the politics of this, the governor and the legislature with the legislature could tomorrow sit down with the plaintiffs in this case and say, look, we don't want to spend a lot of time and energy in court litigating something that's pretty obviously not only a problem, but longstanding problem, but likely unconstitutional. We'd like to sort of sit down and figure out what we can do about this. That hasn't happened. Is that, is that what you're telling us? That hasn't happened. I mean, it could happen theoretically, but, but here's the thing, and this is where my sense of history comes in. I think you need a court order. I'll just, because we know that discrimination resurfaces, it adapts. If the, if the legislature 
redraw school district boundaries to promote integration. I don't know, they might decide that they want to draw them back so that they're so that they're more segregative. I just think that we shouldn't rely exclusively on the political branches. The political branches have to be part of the solution, but we have to anchor this problem in the courts, in my view. And that just comes out of, you know, just my own personal experience litigating these kinds of cases, teaching about them, writing about them, researching about them. It's just you don't you, you don't want to leave it to politics to deal with these issues because they're hard issues. So it's the kind of leverage you need in order to get the political branches to move. That actually brings me to uh, to to the other side of the constitutional coin, which is the Abbott line of decisions, which required many, many court orders and still does to get the legislature and the governor to move. I can personally vouch for that. Um, but, you know, I've been in a lot of discussions, especially academic discussions um, about educational equity and racial justice in education. And so many times the discussion sort of boils down to an either or conversation about, oh, we should make sure that kids, even if they're in segregated districts, get what they need or or can escape public schools or whatever it might be versus on the other side that we should not be doing that. We should be focusing on integration and breaking down segregation and so forth and so on. How do you see, and New Jersey has a very robust strand, as you well know, on what I would call in-place equity, which is the Abbott line of decisions, which essentially says that the state has an obligation, even in this segregated system, to make sure that those Black and Latino students in those segregated districts get all the resources that they need in order to have a high-quality education. And we, And as you know, by court order, we've invested tremendous amounts of money time and energy over decades in, in that endeavor and still going on. How do you see these two strands, if you will, of constitutional jurisprudence playing out? Are they, are they in conflict with each other? Are they complementary? Are they, what's your take on that? I think that there's, um, it's not either or. You need, you need both. Funding is, is essential, but not sufficient. And I'm leaning here on a book written by Rucker Johnson called Children of the Dream, where he, sa where he says you need three ingredients for educational equity. One is a quality preschool, which Abbott supplies, right? One is funding, which Abbott also supplies, and the other is integration. Those are the three legs of the stool um, for, educational, for educational equity. So I, I think it's, it's critically important that we not abandon the funding side of the equation, you know, who knows if we, if if the case is won and uh, the political branches do the right thing, and the court says the right thing, we could we could significantly advance. I think um, diversity and and um, integration. I use the term integration, by the way, because again, coming out of the school, the southern cases, it has a much more holistic feel to it to me. So we could get to a better place, you know, through through integration and through diversity. But, you know, we may be in a place where we continue to have racially identifiable schools. And so wherever children are, we have to make sure that we have educational equity. Whatever school they are in, we have to make sure that we have educational equity. And so, no, we're not giving up on funding. I will say that just, just as a matter of the historical record so that people understand the full context that in the time before Brown versus Board of Education, lawyers did litigate the funding question throughout the South. They did it for many years, but they, they came to understand that litigating funding was like what they, someone described as emptying, a, trying to empty a swimming pool with an eyedropper because they had to continue to go back in district after district, year after year to ensure equal funding. Now that's different under Abbott. I, I don't think, you know, that's not the case with Abbott as I understand it. And so one of the, one of the theories behind integration was that if you put the kids in the same, in the same school, that that would alleviate the pressure on funding. 
So that's just the historical context. But that doesn't in any way diminish my earlier point, which is that I do think you know we we have to continue to be attentive to school funding and again ensuring that we have funding equity wherever wherever uh, children are. Well, and just from a practical matter, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is where I land, which is we have kids in school today in very segregated schools. They need to get what they need now. They're, they're, they get one shot in an education and that's it. That's right. And so, you know, what Abbott was about was about making sure that, that the state delivered that in an intensely segregated, and the court recognized it in Abbott that, that funding was necessary, essential, but at the end of the day, the problems of concentrated poverty, of racial, racial isolation, so forth and so on, had to be addressed as well. And I, I'm in the Rucker-Johnson camp. We've moved our system in terms of equity for children, even in the segregated districts, a great deal forward. But the area of giving kids the opportunity to attend schools that are not only racially diverse, but also more socioeconomically diverse, is really the next frontier, constitutional frontier, that we have to, the groundwork has been laid as I think we've been discussing on this podcast, but that's the next frontier that we've got to, we've got to tackle. And like Abbott, it's gonna be an historical project. So we can't just say, okay, let's do integration. That may take 20, 25 years, but in the meantime, leave these kids behind. We have to do both. You have to, exactly. you have to do both. So yes. we're, on, we're aligned on that one. That's great. Yes, we're, yes, we do not worry. Do not fear, David. We are definitely aligned on that. Yeah, and I, you know, and I, and I hope that my hope would be that um, it's it's funny. I I live in in uh, well, I won't say where I live, but I live in a place that has grappled with with school integration. And the funny thing is, it if you read the history, there was you know, a little bit of drama in getting the schools integrated. Uh, anytime, again, you're trying to dislodge a system that is that is deeply rooted, it's gonna be hard in the beginning. But then you get to a point where it's all people have ever known. And then they're, and then, you know, they sort of learn to like it and love it even. And I hope that we can get to that place in New Jersey. If we can get there, it's going, it's going to be a journey, but it will be well worth the journey at the end of the day or at the end of the year, whatever it is, um, it will be well worth the journey. So that's my hope. Yeah, one of my hopes I'll throw it is that, that to this discussion is that, you know, I think all of the investments we've made as a result of the court's ruling in Abbott in our, in our urban districts, our poor districts, substantial investments really sets the stage for now moving on to the question of um, diversity. I've always argued that the Abbott resources that came in preschool and school buildings and school construction and funding, the state needs to use those resources as leverage to build a, a more fair platform of school districts where districts can share in those resources. So it's a little bit different than say other states where you have still have these tremendous diversities in, re, in funding between rich and poor districts and no preschool and all of these things. We've moved beyond that. The question now is, you know, taking on this next challenge and using the kind of resource base that we've built up as a platform to advance that. So we've got our work cut out for us. I do think that technology can play a role here, certainly. And I, you know, I've seen it in my own personal experience since we've been in the pandemic, connecting with people over Zoom and online is, is important, but I don't think it takes the place of being in person. My son who is 17 years old and who is online a lot wants to be in school. He wants to see his friends in school. There's something about that experience of being in person where you can, you know, sort of see people, see the sort of the, the nuances of how they are on any given day and to be able to stand there face to face and see all of the different um, ways in which people present themselves is really part of this project. So, um, so I, think, I, I think it can be useful, but it's not sufficient by itself, I would say. Worth exploring, but exploring with care. I think that's right. I mean, I, my only comment on that would be that it's now become an essential education resource that needs to be available to all kids. And it can, it can 
do many things for kids, open up all kinds of doors, including uh, doors to experiencing um, other children, other races, ethnicities, so forth and so on, different curricula, educational opportunities. The only thing I would say about that, given what we know from our experience with remote learning in the pandemic, is in order to do that, we've got to make access to uh, reliable broadband internet a public good yes. that's made available free to everybody, without cost, without charge, because otherwise what we're experiencing now is some of the same segregation, if you want to call it, impacts of segregation when it comes to access to technology. We know this from the pandemic that are being replicated in the system at large. So I think it's a tool, an important tool, an essential tool now, and it can help in this regard, but it's 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 got to be seen as um, as not a substitute or replacement and also seen as something that the state has to make sure is accessible to every child because that's not the case now. You can't hear it on the audio, but I am nodding my head very vigorously. <laughs> well, Lisa, I want to thank you for joining us on the on this podcast series. It's been an incredible discussion and a real honor to have the opportunity to speak with you today. So thank you take, for taking your time to uh, to talk to us about this urgent and super important topic. Thank you, David. It's also an honor to be with you because you've done such incredible work through the years. And so I really appreciated the chance to be in conversation with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about the Education Law Center, their wide-ranging work to protect the rights of children, and New Jersey's history of school funding litigation, please visit ELC's website at www.edlawcenter.org. For more information about Legal One, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org/legal1nj.